Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. On this week's episode, we are going to talk about the intersection between economics, data visualization, and data journalism or journalism, whatever you want to call it, which is really obviously close and near and dear to my heart because I intersect with at least two of those three circles. And so to help me talk about some of these issues, I'm very excited to have two folks from The Economist, Marie Seger and Alex Selby-Boothroyd. Alex, Marie, welcome to the show. How are you? Very well. Thanks, John. Great to have you both on the show. I am excited to talk to you about Everything that's happening at The Economist, both on the digital side and the print side, and how the digital team there works, how the DataViz team works, and also about the new project that Marie is leading, this uh, spotlight on data journalism, about The Economist social media strategy. So before we get into all of that interesting content, um, I thought it would help folks to maybe learn a little bit about each of you. Maybe we can um, start with Marie. How did you end up at The Economist and what is it that you're doing over there? Sure. Well, um, I finished my master's last year. Um, I went to Goldsmith and did a master's in digital journalism. That's half computing, half journalism. And then um, I did the Google News Lab Fellowship with Germany Spiegel. And now I'm at The Economist and I'm a social media and data journalism fellow. So I have a bridge rule between two teams, basically, um, and it's really exciting. And I love it. That's great. So you are on the DataViz team, but part of your jobs is, is leading this Spotlight project, right? Yes, yes. Actually, a very big part of my job is exactly that's, that. That's great. So I, I want to dive into that because that's exciting. But I also want <clears throat> to let Alex dive in here a little bit. Alex, what about you? How long have you been at The Economist and, and where did you come over <clears> from? Um, so I've been in The Economist group for nearly 20 years. Um huh. Yeah, I spent. Um, I I started as a temp at the EIU back in like 1996 for a week, and it turned into 17 years. And then uh, when they were setting up a data team at the Economist, um, I applied for a, a role here as an interactive uh, visual data journalist and got that. And then about a year later, um, took over running the data journalism department. So you were like one of the original data journalists. Um, kind of. I've, I've been in the data game for, for a long time, but uh, I don't yeah. really have the, the journalism background, but more of a sort of data and the data viz side of things. I see. I see. I see. Interesting. Well, maybe then you might be the right person to, to maybe kick off this discussion about the current organization of the newsroom there, especially the, the data and the data journalism and the developer desk, um, and how that sort of evolved over time, since you've pretty much seen it evolve from the beginnings. Yes, and it's still evolving. Um, it, it was um, set up with five or six data journalists, five or six um, visual data journalists, and two, in fact, one, that was me, um, interactive data journalist, um, with the idea that we, we, we've always done a lot of numerate um, stuff in the paper, but we wanted a team that could focus really on uh, writing quantity or data-driven stories for the paper pretty much every week, as well as for our um, our blog, Graphic Detail. So we have a daily chart every day. Um, we have uh, various apps, and we provide all the, all the charts for those and the data-driven content for, for, for those as well. So... Before I ask you a couple more questions about the data desk, I want to ask about the the daily chart. So there's a lot of places that do a chart of the day or a daily chart. And 
they're not always great. But I noticed that The Economist, I would say like 99 days out of 100, they are some interesting charts. So how do you keep that up? And how do you maintain the high quality, both in terms of the data that you're showing and also the visualization itself, the aspect of the visual? Uh, I guess the nice thing is um, the data journalists who generally come up with the ideas are very tuned into lots of kind of quirky data sources. Uh, we get some really interesting stuff from Reddit or just something you see on someone's Twitter feed. They um, also obviously get all the research papers and surveys and indexes that come out. And then our data visualizers are just very good at very quickly coming up with the best way to present the data. So we don't really have these, you know, 10 or 20 iterations of a chart, only one or two maybe, or usually just one. But it's only because they've been doing it for so long. Uh, one of our team's been here like 30 years, which makes me seem like a newcomer. Um, and they're just, they're just fast and good. And nowadays it's a pretty well-oiled machine. Can you talk a little bit uh, about the tools that the team is using both for the the digital side, the interactive side, and the print side, and also the, the daily charts? Yes. So um, we have a tool that was built by one of our developers um, 25 years ago. He did a good job. It's still going. Um, mm. And that basically lets us turn numbers into an illustrator chart. Um, so that will create probably 80% of our vanilla chart output um for the rest we're using anything that comes to hand so we use qgis a lot we use um we, we might use data wrapper or, or something to very quickly uh come up with an svg which will then finish off in illustrator but our, our right. work, workflow is very much uh the chart gets finished in illustrator if it's a static and we obviously use d3 um for our interactors mm-hmm now, Marie, you have been around a little bit. You've worked with the Google News team and now at The Economist. What are your observations about the about the Economist newsroom and the and the data desk? Is it what you expected a data desk would would work like? I mean, what what have you seen over your time there, which seems to be not as quite as long as Alex's? But um, what have you seen there? Well, I'd like to make clear I haven't worked with Google. Um, I've worked with Spiegel because oh, I did sure, the sorry, Google News Lab fellowship right, with them. Right. I've never really worked with Google or the Google News Lab itself. I've just been paid by them. Um, <laughs> I guess that's, um, yeah, different. That's, yeah, that's pretty good, yeah. Um, yeah, so I've worked with um, Spiegel Online in Germany and with Trinity Mirror's data unit um, in Manchester in Britain. Um, and I think they focus on different stories to The Economist. So the, the, the team at Spiegel is even smaller than The Economist data team I'd say and they just focus on like really like a few huge stories and big interactives um, and most of the time they'll be working on one story for a month or at least one month um, so mm. when I was there for the general election Germany um, we worked on several projects but we worked on all those projects over like the time period of like two months I'd say um, some longer and um, considering that The Economist has such a small team it's quite impressive how high their turnaround is so obviously we have the um, graphic detail block but then they, our visual journalists and also our data journalists actually work for um, stories that get published in the paper as well so they write their own stories for the, say the finance section and they do the visualizations for them as well 
So that's what really um, impressed me here, the high turnaround, really. Yeah. And how the team works together. Um, I think that's quite unique. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, obviously, you know, the, the just the fast turnaround of news in general, but also that they have this daily chart and they have all these different uh, social platforms that I want to talk about in a minute. Can you talk a little bit about the balance or the what the differences are between the digital side and the print side? It's interesting to me talking to you because The Economist is more of a magazine as opposed to a daily newspaper like The Post or The Times or, you know, that comes out daily. So what are the differences? How do you think about the workflows? How does all that come together in, in a newsroom like The Economist? So um, we have a, a very strict weekly rotor for the paper. So everything gets sort of pitched on a Friday. People working over the weekend always start in earnest on a Monday. We gear up to a Wednesday night when we sort of go to press very early on a Thursday morning. And that sort of takes care of the 50 or so stories that appear in the paper and the 30 or so charts that go with them. At the same time, we'll, um, we don't really react to news events immediately. We might do a very quick piece on something very, very major. We tend to do more analysis. So we publish stuff pretty much every day that onto our website that doesn't go in the paper. Um, and then we'll, of course, supply charts and maps for those as well. And they kind of work together quite nicely. Uh, sometimes we'll do a daily chart. So we did one on Monday for the um, birth of Prince Louis, I think it's called. And it was just a nice quick take on the, the cost of giving birth in various countries. And then that's going into the paper this week too, because it, it's just a, a really nice data angle on it. Um, other times we might take a really good map from the paper and run that as a daily chart. So it's quite a symbiotic relationship. Yeah, it's interesting. The Economist itself, the, especially the the printed paper, is interesting. The branding is is really is unique and it stands out. Does the fact that you have that unique branding does that make your life easier or harder? Yeah, that's a really good question. We've been wondering about that. Um, so we have these blue charts that appear in print, and we don't use that for our online content. And we thought that, you know, we can very easily write a script and illustrator that strips off the blue background on anything that goes online. But we're, we're kind of still wondering whether that's the right thing to do or whether people actually recognize us for our blue charts with the little tag in the corner. So um, it's it's both a blessing and a curse in a way. Um, obviously, it restricts our palette a bit if we've got a blue background. But um, it's also quite nice when I'm skimming through a Twitter feed or Google images, I can see one of our charts immediately. Yeah. I think the template the data team and the search team have come up with is actually quite good with um, the like small print chart um, on one side and then a quote from the article on the other, what we use for social media. Yeah. So something that we tweaked quite early on is uh, Twitter on the mobile is not square. And most of our charts are square. So okay. so we we did come up with this idea of just taking the sort of the chart body and putting it on the right hand two thirds and then having a key takeaway in the left hand third. And that seems to work pretty well. Um, it's at least you can see the whole thing. There's nothing more frustrating, I find, than a chart getting cropped the top and the bottom because the only thing I do is come up with the head the chart title and if that gets left off then I've done nothing for the day um, <laughs> so um, so we do we kind of rejig the the 
content of the chart to fit the format. And that works for Twitter and Facebook. They'll no doubt change what they do as soon as we've got everything um, just smoothly running. Uh, so we'll just have to be ready for that. Right. There is an economist graph that I use in uh, when I teach. And it's on, I think, diseases in, in Africa. There's a story on Ebola, I think. And it basically was like five uh, bubbles, five circles, and each one is just scaled to, to the number of deaths, I think, at the time of the Ebola outbreak uh, a couple of years ago. Yep. When I talk to folks about using you know, circles that we have a hard time figuring out the exact quantity, I, I show them that visualization and I blur out the numbers except for one. I ask them to guess the values of the others and it's really hard to do. And I show it as a bar chart and you know, it's much easier to see it. Um, and then I step back and say, but the bar charts kind of, it's not boring, but everybody's seen a million bar charts. And so there's this little graph. It's a few circles. It's essentially just a table, but it's standing there and it's blue. You know, the background is blue. It stands out on the page. Where I'm going with that is, I guess, how do you think about best practices? And I put that in quotes, really. How do you think about best practices and then engaging readers in the paper or, or online some folks in the data viz field um, would say, you know, never ever use circles or bubbles or something like that. And other people would say, yeah, but it's, you know, it's just a little bit different. It's a little more, uh, it draws you in in a little bit of a different way. So how do you think about those different approaches or, or that dichotomy, I guess, of best practice versus something that's, that's different and stands out a little bit more? Yeah, it's a balance. Um, mm. We, I think we'll use circles if we can also give the values. And so your blurring of the numbers is, is, is kind of telling that you, you have to take the numbers off to not get, yeah. get anything from there. I, I kind of hope that we don't ever really just have circles and unless there's hundreds of them, um, in which case it's the overall kind of impression you get. It's tricky. You, you want people to engage with the chart. You want them to get as much information as possible. Um, but you you won't necessarily get that, as you say, with just straight bars. And also it fits onto the map better and it gives you a sort of geographical yeah. impression of, of where the really dangerous areas are. So it, it is a balance and we do our best. We think about social, you know, it's really, really important to capture people's interest in a matter of seconds often. And um, I think a map, obviously a lot more visually engaging than say a bar chart, for example. So yeah. or a route for maps. Um, don't have to work <laughs> out my way. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think it also depends on the platform. Um, yeah. Right. Let's talk about social media. So a few, maybe a couple months ago now, um, you had this post on the Spotlight on Data Journalism project um, that you're going to, you know, I guess publicly a little bit talk about the the social media strategy. So. Marie, can you sort of talk about the existing strategy and and where you're going with the project? And then I, then I think we can just talk about generally about data visualization on social media and how it differs or maybe doesn't differ on social media platforms versus other types of platforms. Um, yeah, sounds good. Where, where do I start? So um, I think we've already talked about the charts we do for social media with like a small print chart and a key takeaway on the, on the other side. So um, the social team and the data team have always kind of tried to think about um, working together or um, how to make our data journalism work um, better on social media. Um, but then they decided last year that um, we should probably focus on that a bit more because I think I outlined in, in the blog post that 
Um, we get a lot of traffic from the Daily Charts blog. Um, some of the most read stories um, on economist.com um, are part of the graphic detail blog. So um, it, it seems uh, sensible to focus on on that and um, work more with the visualizations because, I mean, vis- visualizations are meant to be engaging. Um, so I think, you know, it's only natural that you want to to take those visualizations to social media or, you know, on on social social platforms, um, and so that's that's my job basically. <laughs> it sounds it sounds great to me. <laughs> um, so when someone at the data desk is creating a graphic, either for you know an online piece or a print piece, how do you then talk to them or work with them? to create something that works for social? What, what's the discussion like? What are the decisions that go into that? And also, how does it differ from platform to platform? Um, so the way it works is that I look out for a chart that I think is really interesting or a story that's really engaging and that I think can be great on social media. Um, and then I try to think of a way to, to use that or adapt it for social media, which so far has often been in the form of GIFs. That approach is especially helpful with interactives. If you want to pull out one narrative um, from an interactive chart, um, and it also gives you a way to tell a story from different angles um, again and again if you want to. That's what I do most of the time. Alex had mentioned earlier taking a graph and, and then resizing it for the platform. So Twitter, for example, you're you know better off wider rather than taller. So does that dictate in some ways what the actual graph would be? I mean, I wonder, for example, uh, a bar chart might be a great chart type. You know, if you have a lot of bars, for example, it might be a really good uh, chart type, but it's going to be taller rather than wider. So does it? Do you think about you know having to remake graphs, especially for social? We don't have time, really. So yeah. we, we get to a, a, a point on a Thursday morning around 11.30 where everything's published. And we then think, OK, now how are we going to promote a lot of this stuff? And at that point, we decide the, kind of the best way of doing it. And if we need to rejig it or resize it or change the format, then we'll do it then. But I think what the area where Marie has been especially um, helpful is for our interactives where we would have one or two developers that make an interactive we'd publish it and then we'd go straight on to the next thing and we just wouldn't even have time to consider how that could work on social media and that's kind of the area where there's so much cool things you can do uh, with animated gifs etc so marie starts thinking about that at the very beginning and it's just meant that everything that we're promoting for interactives is just a million times better than it used to be and Marie, how do you think about the timing of social media tweets, Facebook? Uh, you're a global organization. You know, a tweet you put out at noon uh, London time is, you know, what, like 7 a.m. here. So how do you think about the timing of these different things? Well, unfortunately, that's a really boring answer to this. Um, we, have a, <laughs> we have a tool that optimizes the timings for us and, um we don't just tweet a story once. We tweet it several times usually, mm. um, and we try to optimize for different um, time periods, basically. Well, there's one exception. Um, our daily chart last week on the cannabis industry on the 20th of April, 
we did tweet that deliberately at 4.20 p.m. <laughs> nobody, nobody noticed. Nobody picked up on it. No, no, nobody noticed. Someone noticed. There's one oh, person. Oh, really? There's a fun Venn diagram there somewhere. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> people who are reading The Economist and uh, queued into 4.20 yeah. on, uh, on uh, yeah. So, Marie, can you talk about the Spotlight Project? So what do you what are your goals with that project in terms of what you're going to let uh, us in the public see and learn about in the social media strategy when it comes to data viz? Yeah, so there's actually a lot more to the project than just um, creating GIFs. So um, at the end of uh, the Medium blog post, um, I think I address um, the data survey. So um, I put out a survey about um, a data roundup from The Economist. So, so the social media side is one one pillar of my project, so to say. Um, and then there are other things that I work on. So, um, for example, the data roundup. Um, but then there are other projects that we try to drive forward um, in the data team. So, for example, we want to work a lot more on being transparent about our data and our data sources in the future. That's one of our future goals. Yeah, that is really interesting. And I think it's one of those things that, you know, people keep playing around with it. In some ways, it's a it's a playground um, to figure out the best way to get content uh, in front of people. So uh, looking forward to the rest of 2018, um, what other exciting projects or innovations do you, you know, both of you have uh, have in store for us? So one of the things we are going to be doing this year is relaunching our Big Mac Index. Um, so this has been going for, I think, 30 years or so. It's a, a sort of dashboard of uh, some quite complex data. People seem to love it, though, and it, it really gives you this this way of understanding purchasing power parity. Um, but we need to redesign it. We need to make it um, more we need to make it mobile friendly for a start. So we've been running a survey asking people what they use it for, how many times they've used it. A lot of people come back again and again. Um, and asking for ways to improve it. So we'll be launching that in the next few months. So Alex, so before you go on, so I know about the Big Mac Index, um, and I'll link to it on the show notes page. But for those who haven't seen it, can you just explain what it is and um, and maybe what people are using it for? Yeah, so um, we collect uh, the price of a Big Mac in, I think, 31, maybe even 40 countries, and then use that as a kind of um, equivalent of the PPP basket of goods to see whether currencies are over or undervalued um, and sort of rank them, put them on the map and get a bit sort of crunchier with it and show you how they've changed over time. Um, so before the euro was launched, for example, we sort of gathered up all the prices of the, the euro countries and, and showed that I think the euro was not really at the right level when it launched. Um, that, that's an example. Um, it's a nice visual tool. It's got some fairly robust economics underneath it, but at heart it is the price of a Big Mac in, in many countries. It's a fun index. Um, so anyway, you had some other fun uh, things coming up. Yeah, so um, one of them is the data roundup. Uh, we don't really know what format it's going to come in, whether it's going to be an email newsletter or a blog post or um, a medium letter. But yeah, lots of people responded to our survey and um, Lots of people are apparently interested in a data newsletter or data roundup from The Economist. So that's really exciting. Um, And I'm looking forward to that. We had some really cool responses. 
Yeah, that's great. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. And I'll put the um, link, of course, to the to your Medium article. People can connect with you to get on that list because uh, I'm sure it'll be a great project. Um, Alex, Marie, this has been fascinating. I really appreciate you both coming on the show. And I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out over the next few weeks and months. Great. Thank you very much for having us, John. Yeah, thanks for having us. And thanks to everyone for tuning in to this week's episode. Uh, be sure to check out Marie's blog post on the Spotlight on Data Journalism. Also, be sure to check out um, The Economist's Twitter feeds, especially the one on the daily charts. Um, I'll put links to all those in the show notes. And then I do recommend you sign up, send them a note so that you can get it on the, uh, the list for this new newsletter that'll come out shortly. So if you have other comments or questions, please do feel free to get in touch either on the website or on Twitter. So until next time, this has been the Policy This Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.